All right, well, if you have a Bible, we're going to look once again at Romans 8, 28 to 30. 8.28, and Paul writes there, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Last week we began talking and we said that there is something that we can know as the people of God. And we can know this, that all things work together for good to them that love God. So we said that doesn't mean all things are good, but that all things good and evil work together for good. And there's a vast difference between those two statements because all things being good and all things working together for good are two different things, right? But God, we said, in his sovereign love, and that is all through these three verses here. It's God's sovereign love. We'll see that today. But he blends all things that happen to a Christian, good and bad, and causes them to work for the ultimate good of his children. Now, I heard this guy give this testimony, and it was a, a Russian man named Nikolai Alexandrenko. Try saying that three times fast, but... This, this man was a paratrooper in World War II who was wounded by German machine gunners and shot him down while he was defending his, his mother country. But this man grew up in Russia. He was an atheist, and he'd been taught from a child, and this is where he was. There is no God. And he said he believed in Marx, Stalin, and the good of society, and that's where he was. And so the Germans there, when they invaded Russia, his mother country, he was a lieutenant. He had 200 men under his command. They're all going down, these paratroopers coming down. Out of 200 people, seven survived. And he was shot up. Uh, and he realized as he hit the ground, he's watching all these men around him dying as they're falling to the ground too. And he realized death was imminent. But even then, through all that, at that point, he still was an atheist, clung to his atheist philosophy. He's in all this pain. He's seeing all his men die around him. Didn't shed a tear. And he said in his testimony, when my own mother died, I never shed a tear. He never cried. Up to this point in his life, he had never cried. So he was taken to the infirmary. They patched him up and they left him to die. But he didn't die and he miraculously recovered. And so later... He's in this barracks with these other guys. They're freezing to death. And so he decides he's going to start a fire. He wants to start a fire. He goes over and puts a match in this stove and nothing's happening. He opens it up. Well, it's filled with all these magazines and newspapers, but they won't light. So he starts taking them out. And as he's taking them out, he notices two pieces of paper. And what catches his eye is here he is in, in Germany. These pieces of paper are written in Russian. And so that catches his curiosity, so he starts reading them. And here's what he reads on these pieces of paper. They were gospel tracts, Russian gospel tracts in Germany. Figure that. He starts reading, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he's thinking about those words. He said, I've never believed in God. Yeah, he'd seen Bibles. The only way he'd ever seen a Bible, he said, is when they would burn them in Russia. Never held one, actually held a Bible in his hand. Didn't even believe in God, but all of a sudden, God's working on him. And he continued to read this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. That's Revelation 3.20. And he said at that point, he's saying a presence is in the room with him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In this voice, this thought comes to his mind at this time and the thought was will you stay in darkness just because you didn't ask me in and he said for the first time in his life he began to cry and his sins and his sinfulness he didn't even know what sin was came before his mind and he repented of them all and God's grace and call were right there for him and it says in the coldness of that night that man Nikolai he bowed his head and with tears flooding from his eyes, never cried before in his life, gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. 
And here's what happened to the rest of this man's life. He ended up going to the USA. He was trained at a Baptist seminary, Louisiana Baptist Seminary down in New Orleans. Then he became a minister, professor at a Christian college, and he lived to be 93 years old. He just died last year. He also went back to his people with his training, became a missionary to the Russians, and established a Russian seminary later. But let me ask you this. Would you say all things work together for good in that man's life? Even him being shot down, being put in that place, those tracks being placed there, they actually had been printed in America. These Russian tracks had made it into that stove, and yet the stove wouldn't burn at that time. I'd say all things work together for good. And let me ask you this, too. What credit could Nikolai take for his salvation? What credit could he take for that happening? None. He had absolutely nothing. God did it all. Now listen, we're saying all things work together for good to those that love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And God had a purpose for that man's life. And listen, everyone in here that's a born-again Christian, he has a purpose for your life. And we'll see that. So we said, God works all things together for good to those that love him because those that don't love him, nothing, we said, the wicked, nothing will ultimately be found working for their good. That'll be just the opposite for them, right? But here's the question I want to ask. Why are we able to love God? How is it we're able to love God? We said, we talked about this quite a bit last time, that all things work together for good to them that love God. And here is why we're able to love God. If you look at verse 28, in the second part of that, it says, to them who are the called. That is how we're able to love God is because we are called, the called. The ones that were called will love God because what does that mean to be called? When you call, you're hearing a voice. They are the ones that have heard the voice of the shepherd. John 10 says this, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. That's what the Lord Jesus said. So he calls his sheep, and it is a special call that he gives. He calls them by name. And what we'll see later on is they always respond. His sheep hear his voice, he says, and they will follow me. But here's the Jews, they're fighting him, they're questioning him. Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Christ? Listen to what he says to them. He says, I told you, and you believe not, and you believe not because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So here's what we're going to see today. It is all of God. He has to be the one to give us eternal life. He has to be the one that gives us ears to hear. He has to be the one that calls us, that calls you by name. He has to be the one to draw you to himself. It's nothing of us. It's all of grace. And man, if that wasn't illustrated in that testimony, that's why I shared it. It is all of grace. But here further, the next thing we have to wonder is, but why has God called us? Why has God called us and put a love for him in our hearts? And even more, why do all things work together for our good? Why does all that happen? Because it's not as an end in and of itself. So all of that is at work in our lives. All of those things are true. We've been called. We have a love for God because he first loved us. And all things are working together for our good. All of that is true. And we can take a great comfort in it. But the reason is, is because, as I said earlier, God has a purpose for us as his children. And so what is that purpose? What is the good? All things work together for good? Well, what is the good that everything is working towards? It's right there. Look in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinated. And here is the good. Here is the purpose. To be conformed to the image of his son. That is the purpose that all things work together for good. And it's also found in the end of verse 30. Them whom he justified, them whom he also glorified. And so when we're fully conformed to the image of his son, we will be glorified inside and out. 
And let me ask you a question. Does that excite you? Because I sometimes, honestly, I think we're bored with that. I think a statement like that just falls on ears. It's like, okay, whatever. It seems like it's just high talk. In some ways it can be. It's just high talk that doesn't mean that much. And I think in, if we're honest with each other, if we're really honest, we're more concerned with the new house, a job, the new boyfriend. We're looking forward to that new recipe, whatever new movie's coming out, whatever sports program, whatever we're going to find on the Internet. I'm saying I think that honestly probably excites us more than the fact that God has called us and has a purpose in our life to be conformed to the image of his son. And maybe that's not true for you. But we need to see, what I want us to see today, it, that is a tremendous privilege that God is granting us that we will become like his son. And we sing the song here many times, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask is to be like him. And that would be a prayer according to what we see right here. That's an easy, it's a nice song, it's an easy song to sing, but how many times are we waking up that way? Because I had to ask myself this question, you know, is my purpose in life every day to deal with every situation the way that Jesus, through his spirit, would deal with every situation I come across as I go throughout the day? And it's not so much what would Jesus do, like he's my hero, and well, what would he do? Let me, no, it's how can I let the Spirit of God in me manifest to conform me more into his image, which is what we read about in 2 Corinthians 3. You know, do I wake up every day and look at this day that is going to bring me more into his likeness? Because that's God's purpose, more into his likeness in prayer, in speech, in faith, in love, and in power. And you could say other things. So God has a purpose for all of us to be conformed to the image of his son. But do we joyfully share in that purpose? Is our purpose every day the same as God's purpose for us? If we're his children, that's all I'm asking. Something to think about. I think we're all thinking because it's pretty quiet. But if not... I think we need to get refocused on what life is all about. So we all have heard the Westminster Confession and the all-important question, what is the chief end of man, which is just the old way of saying, what's your purpose in life? What's the purpose for why we're created? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But God is saying right here that our purpose in saving and calling us is that we could be conformed unto the image of his son. I would say this, the two are not in conflict. To glorify God and enjoy him forever and to be conformed into the image of his son, they are not two conflicting statements. They actually are saying the same thing. Because as we are conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fruit of the Spirit is what we're being conformed to, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. As we're being conformed in that way, we're bringing glory to God. There's not a conflict there. So to say a growth in holiness to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is our purpose is the same as saying our purpose is to glorify God in our lives and all we do. Because they're one and the same, are they not? I think they are. So listen, our ultimate purpose for being Christians is not ministry. It's not having a nice family, not having a healthy church. And let me say, all of those things are important. And part of our purpose, but it's not the ultimate purpose. Like at Nikolai man that I just shared about. He was saved, and part of his purpose was ministry. I mean, he went to seminary, he taught in seminary, he was a missionary to the Russians, but that was not his ultimate purpose. And I'll tell you how we can know that is because Paul was also a missionary. A chosen vessel, it was said, to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to send you as a chosen vessel to kings to the Gentiles, and to the children of Israel. He had a tremendous ministry. But listen, that was not Paul's ultimate purpose. Because his ultimate purpose is the same as ours. Doing all that ministry brought that purpose about in his life. But listen, Philippians 1 says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, he says, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
He's saying, I live every day that Jesus Christ is exalted in my body. Did he mean physical healing? No, he meant in the way he lived his life. And he says, for him to live is Christ, not his ministry, to live is Christ. And, you know, you think about the Apostle Paul. He was a man, and he had things that his flesh would have liked to have done that were different than what the Lord wanted him to do. So he's saying that for me to live is Christ. You know, that was his daily mindset, that Christ would be exalted in his body. And I think the Lord Jesus Christ was on his mind constantly as he was awake. So he says that to me to live is Christ and nothing else. That was his great motivation. It was. And listen to Philippians 3. He says this, that I may win Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. And Paul went on to say, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul sees there is a prize to be won, a high calling, the highest calling and purpose. And what was that? It was for him to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the high calling. And he's saying, I am pressing on towards that. I hadn't reached it yet. And he's saying, hey, whatever it takes. Paul sees the honor in all of that. He's seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, whatever it takes, I'm going after that. That is what I am pressing on towards. Running this race is all about every day of my life. My purpose, Paul is saying, is the same as God's purpose. That's the way he looked at it. You know, on March 11th, 1830, a little girl, a little English girl, is doing her lessons with her tutor. And the lesson that day had to do with the royal family. And she's studying the genealogical chart in the book. And here's all of a sudden, this little girl becomes aware of an astounding fact, that she was the one that was next in line for the throne and studying this out. No one had told her that yet. And she realizes this through studying with the tutor. And it said that at first she wept when she realized that I'm going to be the next queen. And then she looked at her tutor and she said, I will be good. I'm going to start carrying myself like I should, even as a young girl. It was little Queen Victoria. She would become Queen of England, and that was her motivation that changed her entire life, was the fact she saw she had a high calling. It changed the way she lived, and that's what happened to her, and that's what we need. Hopefully we can catch this vision. She saw the honor, the privilege, and the responsibility of her calling of being the Queen of England. It motivated her in a manner worthy of her calling. And that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. We're to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called. And that is to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what motivated this girl? She believed what was written. And I'm saying, we've read it right here in Romans 8. God is saying the purpose for us being called, the purpose for him loving us so that we can love him, purpose is that we can be conformed unto the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we would just believe what is written about us, I think that would motivate us to be on a higher plane. Listen to this. Listen to what God says in 1 John 3. Behold, look at what God says. Look at this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And he went on to write, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. I mean, that's what Christianity is all about, or what is it? I'm saying, he says, behold, look what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that he would call us the sons of God. And he's saying through that whole thing, hey, that means one day we will be like him. We see him like as this. We will be like him. And he says, you want to see him face to face and be like him? That motivation that you're a son of God and can be made conformable should cause us to purify ourselves even as he is pure. That's our motivation, the love of God. So for the housewife, how does that mean on a practical daily level? The housewife, you know, her kids are giving her back talk when she's saying she politely asks them to do something and they won't do it. And her husband is harsh and demanding 
What does that mean for her? That means, Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. And not because she feels like it. You know why? Because her purpose is God is doing these things. He's allowing this to happen so I can be conformed unto the image of his son. That's how he works it out. And so what about for a man? Somebody lies about you. They heap insults upon you, abuse about you that you know isn't true. And how does your purpose when that's happened become the same as God's purpose to be conformed to the image of his son? How does that happen? First Peter 2 says this, for even hereunto, that word hereunto means unto this, for even unto this were you called by name. What were you called to? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. He called us. He left us an example. It means it's a pattern. We're supposed to walk in the same way he walked. That's how we're conformed to his image. Leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And how did his steps lead? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, that word reviled means to heap abuse on, verbal abuse. So it says when he was reviled, how did he deal with that? Reviled not again. So if we're going to walk in his steps, that means we got to take it. We don't give it back out like we just had it given to us, right? Because Paul said when he was reviled, he blessed. And he was being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's how he said he handled it. But it says when he was reviled, he, was, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And so Peter says, unto this were we called to follow in his steps. And Paul says, we're called according to his purpose, to be conformed into the image of his son. They're saying the same thing. They're saying the exact same thing. So listen, if we follow the purpose for God in our lives, we will suffer. And put something there in Romans 8, and if you would please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 10, 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul writes this to Timothy. And this is at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life. And he tells Timothy, he says, But you have fully known my doctrine, my teaching, my manner of life. What's the third thing he says there? You've known my purpose. We've talked about what his purpose was. His faith, his long-suffering, his love, charity, his patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, he says, oh, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. And look what he says in verse 12, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus, what will happen to them? That means everybody. If you're living a godly life, it's saying you shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But Paul wrote to Timothy, but continue thou in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. He's saying, you've known my purpose. You've seen the life I've led and what it's brought to me. And he's saying, all that live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution in one form or another. So back to Romans 8, I will ask this question next. When did this purpose for God to conform us to the image of his son, when did this purpose begin? Did it begin on the day you knelt down and said a prayer? And the Bible teaches clearly that that purpose that he had for our lives began before anything was created. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says this, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that's a purpose word. Here's why he's chosen us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. I should have had you guys stay in 2 Timothy, so if you could turn back there real quick. You ought to know right where it's at. The page is probably still wet. But I had another place in 2 Timothy I wanted us to look at. So we're saying God called us. This purpose was established before anything was created. Look in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. And this pretty clearly lays it all out. 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, Who has saved us and called us with a what kind of calling? A holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to what? 
his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus. When did all this happen? What does it say there at the end of that verse? It says, before the world began. So listen, what is that telling us there? If God has saved you, and you're really saved, and he's called you, guess what? It has nothing to do with you. He said, it's not according to your works. So it wasn't because you were a nice person, and it wasn't because you were a bad, immoral person that God called you. It wasn't because you were a wine or a drug addict that he called you. He saved us all for one reason, and that is because he had a purpose. His purpose and his unmerited favor, his grace, are the reasons that he saved any of, of us. And that all happened before you ever did anything, before the world began. And we'll see that, if you would, please turn to Romans 9. Say, when did this purpose start? Before the world began. If we look in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, this is a famous chapter on election. Romans 9, 11, it says, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, here we are again, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He's saying both of those guys there, and if you go back and read the Old Testament account of their lives, it actually, God saved the one you wouldn't think he would have. You know, if those two guys would have lived in Shelby County, we would have looked at things different than God did because Esau was a hunter. And people in here like to hunt, and they'd have been like, man, I like Esau. I like standing in a tree stand with him because he's funny. He's a nice guy, you know, and he gives his meat away to others. I think he'd really make a good Christian. I think that's how we'd look at him in Shelby County, and we'd be like, man, I don't know about that Jacob. He, you know, he's sneaky like a polecat, they probably say around here. You know, He's just an old horse trader. You can't trust him. And he's the biggest heathen I've ever seen because that's the way Jacob was. And so God is saying, I don't look at all that like we would and decide who I think is a good candidate. That's his whole point of the story because he says, when I have a purpose for somebody's life and they're one of my elect and I set my love on them, I will do whatever I have to do as Brother Hamilton used to say, put them through that grinder to make them what they need to be. And if you read, we'll talk about it someday, the account of Jacob's life, that is exactly what happened. We said before, he's dealing with a mass of sinful humanity. He's not dealing with morally neutral people. So he's not unfair. He's dealing with everybody that deserves to go to hell. It's not like we're all good, nice people like everyone more or less appears to be. They're less worrying about that now, but... But God is saying, I reached down in that mass of sinful, putrid humanity and decided to lift a few out here and there. That's what he's saying. And it had nothing to do with whether these people were good or bad. I determined this way back when, is what we're reading here, before anybody had done good or evil. See, because I want the, the teaching of election to stand because God is the one we're saying. He is the one that does the deciding. It's salvation. That's what we're seeing in Romans 8. It is God from beginning to end. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And it says whom he will, he hardens. So you're looking thinking, man, well, where is the comfort or assurance in this? Because it's this. If God the Father has purpose to love you, to call you and to bring you to the image of his son, then nothing can thwart that purpose. Nothing can. You think about the nation of Israel. They were not a people. And yet he set his love on them before they existed as a people, right? You think about it. As a man said, you read that story of Israel's life. God says, I'm going to bring you to that land. I'm going to establish you there. And when you read the story, at times it looks like it'll never happen. Everything they had to go through. But no matter their sin, no matter who opposed them, all these different nations, whether it was Egypt, Moab, Ammonites, whoever, the Canaanites, the giants, guess what? When God establishes a purpose, which he did before Israel ever existed, he is going to bring it to pass despite them, didn't he? And that's where it's a comfort for us. If he's done a work, if he's purposed you in the past, he will bring every step through. He will bring it to completion. And that actually is a source of comfort. So have you been called? That's the question you have to ask. God brought you to a place of repentance where you've turned from your sins and committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we're reading here, he's got a purpose for your life. 
You can rest in that, that what he started, he will finish. And that's what we're getting in verses 29 to 30. That is explaining, here is how the purpose of God works out, how it comes to pass. And that's how we can know that now we're in that purpose. We can know that now, no matter how bad or good it is, all things are working together for good. Because I know that I'm in the purpose of God. I'm in his purpose. And that's how it's worked out. And so what we have here in Romans 29 and 30, it's called the golden chain of salvation. It talks about foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. There are five events that make up this golden chain that can't be broken because God is the one that's put this chain together in your life. So two of them, pre foreknowledge and predestination, they happened before anything was ever created. Calling is the main thing that affects us in this life. As a result of calling, we are justified by faith. And glorification is coming in the future. It's the final goal. And each link depends on the one before it. Because if you take one of those links out, the whole chain will fall apart. But when God gets that first link started, he's going to finish that chain. And that's where it started. So it all began where? It began in verse 29 with foreknowledge. Look what it says there. For whom he did foreknow. Now, to foreknow something, it can mean that you know an event before it happens. But this word foreknowledge here, it means more than that. It's, it's not just talking about God looking down through history and he could see all the events that are going to happen. And some, the Armenian people, they like to say, well, God looked down and he saw who would believe. And so those ones that he saw would believe, he's naming them or the elect. That's not what this is talking about. If God is God, he knows everything. He knows history. So that's not what this is talking about. This verse is talking about a particular group of people, not events. Because look what it says there. Look again. It says, for whom, not events, for whom he did foreknow. And we understand what that word foreknow means when we understand how it's used in the Old Testament. Because to know in the Old Testament, and all this is is the same Greek word for know with a before in front of it. But to know in the Old Testament meant you knew somebody intimately. So Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. So that's more than just he knew who she was. That's the most intimate knowing you can have right there. In Amos 3, 2, listen to this. It's a simple statement, but listen to what it says. You only, God said, have I known of all the families of the earth. He said that to Israel. Now, does that mean he didn't know about any of the other families of the earth? No, but he's saying, I've known you in a special way. That's what he's saying there. In a distinguishing love, I set my affection, my purpose on you specifically. You know, have I known of all the families of the earth? He says this in Deuteronomy about Israel. He says, for you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. And that's where it starts right here with this word foreknowledge. Whom he did foreknow, it's speaking of those whom God has set his love on before they were ever born. That's what he's talking about here, for those he did foreknow. It speaks of God choosing his people in advance and setting his love on them before the world ever began. Deciding that he would bring you to him. And I like what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said, I'm so glad he chose me before he saw me, because if he had waited until he saw me, he might not have wanted me. God said, God might have looked at us and been like, I don't know, I might want to choose again. Roll those dice again. That's not what happened. So here, listen, if you're a Christian in here today, that is you. He loved you before you were ever born. This is talking about the love of God. And that's why Paul goes on. We're not going to deal with that today. But if God be for us, who can be against us? And he talks about who can separate us from the love of Christ. Because this love goes clear back before we ever existed. Way back before. So... If you say Jesus loves you, it didn't happen when you said a prayer and believed. That's not when he started loving you. You believe, and that's why you love God. Because it all happened in eternity past. 
is when it happened. And that's why we believe. That's why we love God. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says this, But if one loves God, one is known by him. The only way we can love God is because he has known us and set his love on us way before we ever existed. He's had his eye on you, and he's brought all things because of this love that was before you ever existed, he's brought all things in your life to work together for your good, to bring you to a place to love him. Because, listen, the only way you can love God is because he's given you faith, and faith is a gift, isn't it? So God in eternity past decided to know you, and he had his eye on you, and he said, I got my affection, my delight, my love is on you. I've set it on you before you even came into existence. And if he hadn't done that, we would never love him. Never. We love him because he first loved us. And the second thing we see here is verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And so when God set his love on you, he actively is involved in all the events of your life is what's happening. And he's seeking the highest good. Being conformed to the image of his son, whether we like to hear that or not, that is the best and highest good that our heavenly father could do for us. It is. That's the highest privilege that we could have. And that's where predestination comes in. Before, pre, before, destination, the destiny we talk about people having destiny. And your destiny, if you are a, truly a Christian, it was plotted out before you were ever born. The events of your life that would bring you to the final glorification. All of those things, that's what we're talking about. All the things that work together for good that creates your destiny. You know, Winston Churchill, he, he gets in that position where it looked like he would never be prime minister. And he's like, I believe this is my destiny. In other words, what he's saying is all the events of my life have happened to bring me to this point, to lead this country at this time. And that's what we're talking about here. God sets his love on us, and then he causes all the events, predestines, all the events of your life to bring you to the point to where you will be conformed to the image of his son. You will have a glorified body. You will meet him face to face. Everything's working towards that. That's what this is telling us here. It's his love. It's not passive. He doesn't just sit back when God sets his love on his children, just sit back and leave them to their own devices or to the devices of others even, right? His love is moving us towards that highest good predestination means boundaries he set the boundaries of our life said it's where we're going to be he's going to bring about and have happened he's taken all the pieces of the universe moving everything around predestined to make things happen exactly how he wants them to happen for you that's what he did he says that determinate counsel predestined counsel, they couldn't help do what they did. They made choices, but God had all the parts moving so that the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified by those particular people. That was decided before this world ever began. And that's what he's saying he's doing for our lives, though, for the good. Everything's being plotted. Everything. He's moving everything before the world began. Look in Ephesians chapter 1, if you would, please. And we can see that pretty clearly here. Beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And look what it says here in verse 4. According as he has chosen us, elected us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. So when you become a Christian, you are adopted by God into his family. Behold what manner of love the Father has in us that we should be called the sons of God, adopted by him. And he's saying that has been predestined, that we would be brought to that point. All the events in your life, good and evil, have brought you to that place. That's quite a blessing. Now look in verses 11 and 12. It says in that same chapter, it says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated 
And here's that purpose again, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. It's going to happen. <laughs> he's going to bring it to pass. That's what he's saying. And why? That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. When he's finished with that work conformance, we will be to the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace. That's what heaven's going to be like. We're praising God for what the work he's done in us, where he's brought us, the glory he's given us to share in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it'll be a tremendous time. And that's what happens there. Think about it. If God's your father, what responsible father is passive in the molding of his children, the character of his children? What father just sits back and just lets their kids just be however they want to be, do whatever they It is not in any sense trying to, you know, and that's what God has done for us. He's predestined. He's molded us. He loves us. He's doing what is the highest good. Any father is going to wish, they should wish the highest good of their children. And so he's predestined us and worked all events to bring us into the image of his son, that we can be stamped. Image means stamped with that very nature. That's what that word's saying. Not like like you have two apples no the very nature of his son conformed to that the very nature inside and out he's bringing it to pass paul writes in second corinthians 3 we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the spirit of the lord Changed into that image by the Holy Spirit. So God has determined, predetermined in our lives that by his spirit in our lives, working through trials, through prayer, through the word, through chastisement, through sufferings, through persecutions, through every event that happens in our life, we will be brought to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ in the end. Back in Romans 8, look what it says here in verse 29 that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants the Lord Jesus Christ to have the preeminence among us all, which he will. He is the son that is the only eternal son. We're sons of God, but we're not the eternal sons that have that relationship to the Father, right? But it says he wants to have many brethren. Brothers, they have the same image, the same likeness, the same nature. You know, when Greg had his three brothers sitting over there, if he couldn't see what he's talking about, the same image, characteristics, and that's what he's saying. We'll have the image and the characteristics and the nature of our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what heaven's going to be inhabited by. People that are that way, the same family, family resemblance. Hebrews 2 says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, meaning one nature, for which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brethren. We're partakers of the nature of God through the promises, right? We make choices and decisions. And we have responsibilities, and we're going to be held accountable. But in the end, God has predetermined who will be his elect. And all things are working together for our good to bring us to glory. God is sovereignly working in your life, in my life, from the first step to the last step. God's favor and grace is all that's causing it to happen, and we can praise him for that. We really can. And it goes on to say here in Romans 8, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And he goes on in verse 30 to say, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. Now, we talked about that earlier, about the calling, right? And Jesus said this, many are called, but few are chosen. And so what does he mean by that? Are those the same people he's talking about there in that calling? So here there's a, a general call that goes out, and that's the many that are called. The proclamation of the gospel goes out, and it goes out. Billy Graham goes into every home in the U.S. back in the day, right? They didn't say only the elector allowed to listen to that gospel message. goes out indiscriminately. And guess what? It's rejected by most sinners, and that's the many that are called. 
but the few that are chosen are the one that Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. And they're the ones that have known what is known as, they've received what's known as the effectual call. So it's the same preacher preaching the same words, but to the few, to the chosen, the word of God comes to them in the power of the spirit and its effects are irresistible. When God has predestinated you and foreknown you and he calls you, you will come. That is what will happen. It's an irresistible call. Now, the person gives a voluntary response, but the Holy Spirit has brought them to a place where they are willing to repent. That's like Jonah. God, he's like, I'm not going. Well, God says, all right, I got a way of making you willing to go. And that's what God does to those that he's predestined. There's nobody would come to God if he didn't make us willing. That's the point. Do you know that? Everybody's running away from him. <laughs> so when Lydia heard the gospel preached by Paul, it says this. Here's that effectual call. It says, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. God had to open her heart. That's that calling done by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, when Paul preached on Mars Hill in Acts 17... He's preaching one message, one message. The gospel's coming through one preacher, one message. And if you read Acts 17, there's three responses to that message. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, it said some of them mocked. That was one response. And others said, well, we'll hear thee again of this matter. But then there's a third response, and this is that effectual call. Howbeit certain men clave unto him, Paul, and believed. Only a few responded, though all heard. So there's that external call that happens that all hear. And most, it doesn't even penetrate their hearts. But then there's, this is what Paul's talking about here, the call, that effectual call, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the heart is opened and always responds. It's always a response that takes place because the spiritually dead are raised to life and they respond to that call. It always accomplishes God's purpose. Second Thessalonians 2. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And he says, whereunto he called you by our gospel. The gospel has to go forth. That's how people are called. But he says those people were chosen from the foundation of the world. So let me ask you, has God called you? And this is critical. Has he called you? Because you don't call yourself. We don't call ourselves. And that means, to be called means that by his word and by the Holy Spirit, God has entered your life. He's interfered with your plans. That's what that calling means when you're called. I was happy in my sin. I don't know about you. I was pretty happy in my sin. And you don't want to be disturbed. You're going through life. But God, by his Holy Spirit, begins to bother you about your life. And it talks in the Bible about the cords that are drawing you to him. That's how that calling takes place. And he lays hold of you. That's what it means when you're called. Paul, in Philippians, he said, I was apprehended. So when God calls you, he's disturbing you. You can't get away from him. You're trying to run. I tried to run. I couldn't run. I remember him dealing with me about some pretty sinful things in my life. And I remember pounding on my steering wheel like, I don't want to give this up. Dealing with me on some things. But God wouldn't let me go. And I praise God for it. I don't have it here, but there's a poem called The Hound of Heaven. <laughs> That's what God is like. That's what the Holy Spirit's like. When that call is on you because he's loved you and predestinated you, he's after you. And you're not going to get away from him. And that's how you can know you're called. Because then he convicts you. And you see, man, I am a total sinner, utterly helpless. I'm undone. You're burdened with your sin. Because Jesus said what? He said, I didn't come to call who? The righteous. But I came to call sinners to repentance. And so that's what that call comes to you at. You're bothered by your sin. Man, I need to repent. I'm going to perish. You're under conviction. It's, the whole, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And he's drawing you. And all of a sudden, you, all your arguments with the word of God and Christian lifestyle, they all start going out the door. And you realize, man, I need help. I'm a sinner. I've got this burden. 
And he shows you the cross then. You see that. You can see what you've heard for all these years, but now you can see that is my only answer. That is my answer. And that's that call taking place. He calls you what? To surrender your life. Commit it to the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's happened to you and you've done that, then here's what you can know. You can know what we're talking about. All of these five parts of this chain apply to you. And also, all things are working together for your good because you are the called according to his purpose. And he goes on to say in Romans 8.30, whom he called them, he also did what? Justified. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I spent a lot of time on it in that spiritual warfare series we taught. But when you repent and believe, which is what that calling produces, it will produce that. When you believe, you are justified. And we said justified means not just forgiven. It includes forgiveness. But that your sins become the great exchange, become the Lord Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is given to you, a complete righteousness. Just as if you never sinned or lived a holy life, lived his life is given to your account. That's what it means to be justified. And so he's saying, hey, those that are called, that believed and repent, those people are justified. The great exchange. And finally, what does he say happens there? The end. Those whom he justified, them he also did what? He's glorified them. And listen, all of these verbs, predestined, foreknown, called, justified, glorified, they're all in a past tense. Because once God has begun something, it's as good as done. He's not saying might be, will be. It's all said in a past tense. So if you've been foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, listen, your glorification is certain. Because that is the end of the purpose of God, isn't it? The glorification is the destiny of everyone that is a born-again believer. That's your destiny if you're saved. A new body in a new world. That's where we're headed. And the older you get, the least for me, the better that sounds. <laughs> I mean, when I'm 20, it's like, eh, I'm getting around pretty good. The older you get, the better that sounds. A new body in a new world. And the way this world is, it's all kind of decaying at the same time. Seems to me, right? So you're in Romans. Just look up there in the same chapter in Romans. Look in verses 16 to 18. It says, the Spirit also bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And Paul, look what he says in verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worthy to be compared with what? The glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's what we're talking about here in Romans 8.30. There is a glory. That is the final destiny. And he's saying anything you have to go through. I don't care how long your trial's been going on. I don't care how miserable you feel. It doesn't matter what he says. He says none of that, no matter how bad it gets, is worthy to be compared to this glory. It must be something, right? Something that we just don't quite grasp yet. But it's more than being the Queen of England, I'll tell you that. It motivated her. This glory should be a motivation for us. Paul wrote this in Philippians. He says, For our conversation, our lifestyle is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change. He calls it a vile body, a vile body of humiliation, our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And that's it right there. And what's the overriding theme when you look at Romans 8, 28 to 30? What's the overriding thought? Now, I'll tell you what it is for me, and that is that the entire salvation process is God's work from beginning to end. And we ought to be glad because, listen, if it depended on me and you, we are in trouble. It doesn't depend on us. It really doesn't. Because it says it's his purpose, is it not? According to God's purpose. Isn't that what we read there in verse 18? Who are the called according to his purpose. He's the one that foreknows. He's the one that predestinates. He's the one that calls. He justifies. He glorifies. He never loses a single person. Not a single one. So the same ones that he foreknows from all eternity, they are the same ones that will be glorified. Not a single one is lost. Isn't that what Jesus said? 
When you're in the Father's hand, there is nobody or nothing is going to pluck them out of His hand. That's what He's saying. So do you love the Lord? That's the question. Do you love the Lord? Do you delight in His ways and do you want to follow Him? You know, can you say like Peter, I may not be perfect, but I know, Lord, that you have the words of eternal life and I'm not going anywhere. Do you have that in you? Do you know in your heart that you've been called? Have you heard that voice call your name? Have you ever fully repented and made a conscious commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you done that? Then that should give you great assurance according to these verses. And you can be going through, like I said, a tough time. But take comfort in this. If God has called you, if he's brought you to faith and repentance, he will finish the work. Because his foreknowledge is a love that chooses his elect from before the world. And so you can be experiencing pain, sorrow, depression, tears of disappointment. But God says everything, all of that will work together for your good if you love God, if you've been called. And so God is in control. That's what I'm seeing here. And just remember, Paul said, we sing this song, Philippians 1. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's basically saying the same thing of what we talked about today in, in Romans 28 to 30. And so for that reason, Paul said this also. For this reason, I also suffer these things, and I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, have you entrusted your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ have you entrusted your eternal destiny by faith to the God of the Bible? Then we can be like Paul, convinced that what we've given him, our souls, our lives, he'll keep until that day. He'll never let us down. If God began that work, like we're seeing here, if he's called you, then that means he worked in the past to bring you to that time of calling, and he'll continue to bring you to glory. We can trust in that. It's a positive thing. It really is. It's a positive thing. But listen, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, and some don't, look, the invitation, though, is still, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We don't know, except by faith, who the elect are, right? We can't see that book. We could know if God's put a love in our heart and if he's called us, but if you're bothered about your sins today and you're here, a desire to get rid of that burden and get right with God, that is the working, the fact that that really is the case with you, that's the working of the Holy Spirit. That's how God is convicting you, drawing you, calling you. He's pleading with you. That's what he did with that Nikolai. Listen to that voice. That's what Nikolai did. Listen to that voice. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. And you don't have to sit there and wonder, well, man, maybe I'm not one of these elect. Maybe I'm not one of them. No, Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. They'll come to me. They'll be drawn. If you're being drawn, that's God doing that to you. And he says, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You come to him and you bow your knees. You don't have to worry. And when you, once you do that, you'll know, hey, I'm one of these people. I'm one of the called according to God's purpose. He's inviting you today to be his child. God the Father is, and you may not have tomorrow. But I'd say for the rest of us, if you've left your first love, repent and get to where you can say, I know I love God. If you've left that, we need to get that right. We love our relationship with God. We need to get it back. And it says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And then let's trust that all of us will be able to say this, I know I love the Lord, and I know all things are working together for good because I have been called according to his purpose. Why? That I might be conformed to the image of his son. And I am going to see him one day face to face and be like him. And I know my father has set his love on me from eternity past. And his sovereign grace continues to work in me, and he'll bring me to my future glory. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you, Lord, and, and uh, we acknowledge your sovereign grace, mercy, and love that you've extended in our lives, Lord, and we're so thankful for that, that the work you've begun in our lives, the, the way you've called us, you've 
put a love for you and your word in our hearts. And we thank you for that, Lord, that we can know that no matter how bad it is, all things are working together for our good to bring us to that place of glory, conformity to the image of your Son. And I thank you for that, Father, and for this word of assurance that you've given us here in Romans chapter 8, Lord. And I also, I pray, Lord, that someone here that is convicted of their sins, they want to come to you, Lord, that you'll continue to deal with them by your Spirit and draw them to you and grant them that gift of repentance. Cause them to come to you today, Lord, to hear that voice that says, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I just ask that you'll do that, and I thank you, Lord, for the words you've spoken to us today and your presence here with us in Jesus' name. Amen.